0: Welcome to the CDC Podcast, end of year 2011 edition. With me today, founder and overlord of Critical Distance, Ben Abraham. Hey, how you doing? Senior curator of this week in video game blogging and fourth woman of the ludodecahedron apocalypse, Chris Ligman.
1: That's
2: horsewoman, horsewoman of the ludodecahedron apocalypse. And yes, send all your hate mail my way.
0: Contributor to This Week in Video Game Blogging and Editor-in-Chief of Game Ranks, Ian Miles Chong.
3: Hey, it's good to be here. It's all in place.
0: Critical Distance back-end gnome, David Carlton. Hello, looking forward to uh, the conversation. And newest contributor to This Week in Video Game Blogging, as well as contributor to lots of other stuff, Katie Lloyd-Williams. Hello,
4: good to be here. How's it going?
0: Okay, we got a lot to get through, so let's get started. Ben, you start us off. Choose something off the list.
1: So I guess we're uh, we're, we're talking about the uh, <clears throat> excuse me the events of uh, 2011 and some of the biggest things that happened. I don't know. I, mean, I guess it's it's sort of hard to still the most important events, but some of my favorite things that have happened this. year... Well, I guess my number one favorite thing that happened this year was uh, this weird fake video game thing that we have called uh, Superna Galaxy, which if I were were being uh, a good member of the team, doing my intern job, I would have actually opened with like a a greeting from the soup people of Chaplock or something and hand it all up. It took me
0: weeks to realize that was fake. I thought this was some Facebook thing that you had going on and I was, and I was getting the integration messages
1: yeah, well, it was, was just a, um, it was like a joke, right? It was a send-up that um, I think Lee Alexander and Sarah Elmele got together and, and I think they were just playing Mass Effect or something and they kind of realised just how ludicrous so much of what happens in those type of games um, really is and went, you know what, we can, we can do this better. We can go all over the, over the top and make a really good parody So they did, and um, they invented Suparna Galaxy, and um, the rest is kind of history. There's there's a really great podcast about it as well, actually, where um, Lee and I think Kirk, Lee and Kirk get together on the uh, Big Red Potion podcast and...
0: um, And they take it seriously for about the first half.
1: Yeah, yeah, the first half hour is amazing listening, because they're just so seriously committed to the project. Yeah, so I'm kind of interested to hear what other people think about, like, like you said, Eric, being on the outside of it. I mean, I I kind of got in a bit late and was sort of like I went intern that as well. But it was sort of it was pretty easy to kind of just go, oh yeah, all right. Once you get it, that this is a big joke, and you can kind of just add whatever. Um, what
0: I found amazing is I always find it amazing when fans go to such extreme length to catalog and inform things. That's why we have all these game wikis, and then the and then the fans of Superna Galaxy, something that does not exist. Just created this huge wiki. It's not yeah. as big as the Wow one, but it's like they're making stuff <laughs> up and then they're intercontextualizing <laughs> everything to make sure it all matches. And they're yeah. doing this based off nothing. That yeah,
1: well, it's it's God. the ultimate creative exercise, creating a whole world out of whole cloth. And it's full, it, it just shows like how easy and um, kind of formulaic as well it can be to make up more in that sense. So yeah well, interesting.
5: And, I mean it's both the ultimate creative exercise and it's not because it's sort of creating the, a subset of the trappings of a world out of whole cloth, but uh, it also points out at just how much is missing from from your doing that. I mean, just on the lower level there's you know so much more that could be filled in, but uh, there's you know a minor detail of implementation and uh, um, art and so forth. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's 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 really painful listening to like these these wonderful you know voice samples that Sarah recorded for example and realizing that well there's ten minutes of fantastic Suparna Galaxy audio out there in the world and I but just wish there were a
0: yeah. few hunt more hours of that stuff. I wonder if that's what, what like a, a character in a book feels that I, I had these two hundred pages all to myself and now I die.
2: I mean I think if nothing else like the Suparna Galaxy wiki is just this great proof of concept of basically creating this, you know, ground-up fandom over nothing. I mean, I, I run the risk of, you know, going completely academic here, but I've spent an awful lot of time, you know, in fan studies and looking at how so these, like, fandoms evolve. And even though this is, like, a totally tongue-in-cheek play upon uh, some of these big fandoms and these big, like, contained worlds like Mass Effect or Dragon Age or whatever, uh, it also goes to show just, like, the like the absolute effectiveness of something like a wiki form to create like these collective knowledge bases for these fans from anywhere and like it wasn't just the wiki I mean like David said there were the audio samples there were I think there yeah, were like something like songs well. being created right and some you know, guy people-
0: actually created entire intergalactic timekeeping system and scientifically made it book <laughs> right that and blew my mind
2: it's just like all these people getting together, For absolutely no reason, except that it's fun. At least for me, that reminded me why we get involved with, you know, communities like this online. It's just like, it's not about fame. It's not about getting paid for this. It's about, you know, sharing that enthusiasm with other people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The the whole thing reminds me of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Like, Arthur Conan Doyle, when he wrote his his fiction's of Sherlock Holmes... He wasn't really paying attention to the continuity. He wasn't really paying attention to the discrepancies. Like at one point, Watson's wife is dead. At the other point, you know, he's got a second wife. It's it's all weird, but uh, 50 years later, people are still reading his books and, you know, they're cataloging the whole history of Sherlock Holmes based on what Watson supposedly wrote in books. He's taken as like a real character. I see the same thing here happening to Superman Galaxy, even though there's very little written about it. People are willing to fill in the blanks. You know, they're willing to, uh, you know, to, to carry on where Lee Alexander and Kirk Hamilton started off, right? They're, they they fill in the blanks with their own stuff because it's interesting to do so. Just like uh, Sherlock Holmes, you have you have all his, his stories, but you know he alludes to certain other adventures that uh, that were never written, and it gives the fans uh, an opportunity to. Uh, to expand upon them and basically treat him as a real character and even try to explain the, um, the, the inconsistencies that happen in the story because it might be stuff that, say, Watson didn't want to write about because it was disturbing to him or something like that. It, it's sort of interesting to see that happen in uh, Spider-Galaxy as an example and in other video games or uh, fictions like the Cthulhu Mythos, which has you know, basically the same thing where writers fill in the blanks. Yeah,
2: it's really interesting that, I mean, funnily enough, like, what began in the case of something like Arthur Conan Doyle as, like, just an incident to the writing that he wasn't caring that much is now a transmedia strategy, as they say.
0: Oh, God, transmedia. I think it's (laughs) mainly the ex... That's another thing they tried to push a lot this year, was the idea of transmedia. Dead Space 2 was probably the biggest example of it. He had movies, comics, web... eh, Motion comics, video comics comics, the game and then to the books, and the game almost seems secondary to this entire interlocking experience. Then they try to do the same thing with Assassin's Creed and the Dragon Age franchises. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have talked onto this, but how much does that take out from the whole, the actual product that this is supposed to be all centered around? I think it's
2: it- really cynical, honestly, and until they can solve the cynicism problem, all of these transmedia strategies are going to fall flat on their face. But, I mean, I don't want us to derail us into, like, this huge conversation on the callous cynicism of transmedia, because that would be another four hours. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, we can talk I, about that for another
0: half hour. It could... Next year. Um,
2: <laughs> if I could cite one if example... Even if we record of, it today, it would be out next year.
0: Yeah. Thank I you. Mean, if,
3: I, if I could cite one example of them doing it properly, it would have to be Bethesda's... Uh, Use of uh, I forget the writer's name, but uh, they did it with uh, Skyrim. You know, in between the events between uh, Oblivion and Skyrim, there's actually novels written about what happens during that period, and it's actually but they're well in done. game. No, no, they, they actually released novels. Like, oh, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, they actually wrote some novels the, about uh, the stuff that happens there, and they actually got like an actual fantasy writer who has his own series, and I can't remember his name. What is wrong with me? <laughs>
0: It'll come out to you as soon as we stop talking. Yeah. But, you Um, know,
3: there are proper ways to do
0: it. uh, I'm just looking at the list. At random. Oh, God, I know Ben is going to hate me for this. Gamification, exploitationware, slash bullshit.
5: So, I'd I'd actually like to broaden the topic a little Uh, bit because when I started the year, I was working for a social game company and. You know, at the end of the year, Zynga just IPO'd a couple days ago. And so it seems to me that the tenor of the discussion around both social games and gamification and kind of games expanding out of their traditional space has been a little different this year than it was last year. Like last year, it seemed kind of vicious, whereas this year it seems to be getting more, both of those seem to be getting more accepted. But I've got a very different viewpoint on that than other people do. So I'm curious how other people see that.
0: Well, I've, I've read two books on it this year. One from uh, Jane McGonagall, uh, Her uh, Reality is Broken, and another one which is basically an instruction manual on how to insert gamification into anything you was do that or do. instruction produce.
1: manual Dave Zickerman's book?
0: No, and I okay. cannot remember what it was. Uh, Game Frame, that was a... I don't remember who wrote it. it. Was just I just noticed in the library, picked it up and mm-hmm. wrote a review on it. And it seems that there are, two, there are two vastly different philosophies behind it, and I don't think either of them are going to do us any good, because they both take very extreme positions that and don't work fundamentally. On the one hand, you have uh, Jane McGonagall's pushing forward games as a way to change the world in and of themselves, and on the other, you have the sort of... A marketing game frame where it is meant to be, it's a cynical attempt at basically marketing and, pro- and corporate propaganda.
5: Okay, but th- then you also have people like Roger Travis and Kevin Balestrini and Karen Zook who are, as far as I can tell, using um, uh, game-related techniques to, for example, teach foreign languages very effectively. Uh, do you see that as falling into one of one or the other of those buckets or
0: that's the thing is is because the way gamification is used by the two by the two extreme programs that I just described is very different than what Roger is doing and I've read extensively on what he's doing and it seems that he isn't gamifying an already existing experience he is creating a game to an experience to facilitate something that, is done a different way, rather than just adding something in to help facilitate it. Yeah, because there's gamification of education where you change the way you give out grades to ex- an experience points like track versus what Roger is doing, where every literally every assignment has is built upon an almost an RPG story like sense, one fact to the other, and you to uh, succeed, you have to build your own learning and knowledge of the subject you're studying which is a very different process to me.
1: Yeah, a lot of the um, critique that I see happening of gamification is of as like a mistaken... Yeah, that's what, I think that's why Ian Bogost is this, uh, coined the term exploitation because I think gamification as a term is basically... What it refers to isn't what the name refers to. It really should be pointification, because it's not really gamification if it were gamification, it would be turning things into games. But it's not usually turning things into games. It's things like, uh, like Eric said, adding points to them or adding experience tracks or badges or something like that. So I think, David, you were at GDC earlier this year, and I think you would have heard, um, Did you attend Chris Hecker's talk on external motivation versus intrinsic?
5: I, I didn't go to that simply because I've been reading Alfie Cohn for like a decade and a half ago. Uh, okay. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's it's true. A lot of the gamification stuff is just about adding extrinsic motivators instead of pulling out intrinsic motivation.
0: It's, and you work at a social game you, platform, and I'm wondering, I it anymore. Oh, you yeah. used to it, but it, have they? I I haven't checked in in quite a while, but have they actually moved beyond the sort of simple model of of exploiting and pointing pointification of of the Farmville style, or have they moved on into different things, or is it really central about that monetization pushing forward? Uh, Making money is certainly something that uh, people in the social
5: game space enjoy. Uh, There's no question (laughs) about that. Whether, in terms of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivators, I think that there are more and more games out, but still not as many as I'd like, where I enjoy the social game mechanics just for what they are. So something like Triple Town or uh, Gardens of Time works that way for me. And actually, some of the recent Zynga games for me, I think the interlocking systems are interesting to figure out. But when it comes down to intrinsic motivators, though, to me there is real intrinsic power in FarmVille itself. And the, the, because you're, you're building a farm there, In the, the fact of that can be expressive in a somewhat similar way to building a house in Minecraft can. So I know um, the game that affected me the most, social game that affected me the most that way is, is Social City. And my daughter and I used to play that together, and we would spend you know half an hour every weekend and uh, talking about how we wanted to grow our city, how whether we thought that this building would fit better over here over there, whether we wanted to divide our city into districts with themes or kind of mix things together. And uh, you know from the game's point of view, the numbers would be the same if I put this building over there instead of over here instead of over there. It'll affect my population growth the same both ways or my my citizen's happiness or whatever. But my daughter and I um, got a lot out of discussing this in terms of what we want our city to be like. So so intrinsic motivation is there in some games if you want it, but uh, certainly it's not drawn out as much as I would like. And I could make that same complaint about console, about standard console PC role-playing games as well, for that matter.
0: But outside that, you have uh, another social game that seems to belie both those ideas, uh, Echo Bazaar, which goes into very first-person, like, RPG aspect.
5: That that sort of pulls back into the kind of uh, lore uh, areas that we saw with Suparna Galaxy of the the different groups in the city, and figuring out what the interconnections are between them and the backstories for all the events there. And he had some very good writers working for that, uh, like Emily Short, for example, who's done some some very good text
0: adventures work for them. Oh, I did not know she worked there. Yeah. All right. Gamification uh, Benny, uh, is
1: a goddamn treadmill. I'm just
0: gonna say <laughs> Quote of the podcast, Gamification is a treadmill. Ian
1: knows, because he's clearly been, been gamified. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Ian do you have something off the list that you'd like to talk about
3: oh uh, wow that's a lot to talk about um, but uh, I, I, yeah let's talk about you know it's still fresh in our minds can you but, say you that know.
0: again because I can it, you cut out there
3: oh, sorry. Uh, we should talk about the spike video game awards you know or the non video <laughs> game awards didn't really uh, talk about
2: I was willing to give uh, it a week. mention
0: <laughs> I was willing to give it a mention that was it Moving on <laughs> <laughs> There's your spike mention. I wrote about it. That's my last <laughs> word. But uh, the other Developer Choice Awards, and I, remem- I remember more about what Ben said afterwards than the actual award show, even though I remember it being a pleasant experience for a video game award show, it was actually something worth watching on the Internet was t- was the images of Tim Schaefer and him forcing me to publish them on Critical yes. Discs. Yes,
1: yes, the TDC macros.
0: I didn't get... I, I still don't get... I still don't get it.
1: They're amusing. So I, think, you know. I think that part of part of a meme is... Part of what makes a good meme good is that you don't always get it. Part of its ineffability and inscrutability is uh, often the, the key attractor. And certainly the, the expressions on Tim Schaefer's face were, you know, great, and Brian Taylor gets um, full credit for taking those photos. But yeah, I mean, it was just a, a, a thing that happened, and it was fun.
0: Hey, if they put it up next year, I'll be watching those, too.
1: They should put it up on, uh, on the web, I mean, instead
3: of
0: the VGAs. Did. did they? Yeah, last year. That's where we that's where I watched them. Ah. I, I don't remember so. who was stream. I like came in half an hour late because I didn't realize they were streaming it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: GameSpot or something was streaming it.
0: And the A I S, what is it? The A S I S?
3: E I E S, American yeah. Interactive Academy of Arts and Sciences, something like that.
0: Yeah, Academy of
3: Interactive Arts and Sciences, yeah, that's the one.
0: Yeah, A-A-S. if they did, if they streamed an award show, that would be as well. I know they won't get a TV deal, but even yeah. on the with video know. games being as web centric as they are, even that would be preferable to nothing.
3: It would be because, I mean, the re- the only reason why people pay attention to the Spike VGAs is because of the amount of uh, – uh it's not like people watch it on TV. I mean, a TV has, like, very few viewers. Nobody watches Spike. But on the web, it's because of the marketing and the advertising that goes on, and, you know, the journalists talking about it on Twitter, on, on the websites, you know, all, all that stuff. But if we were to, uh, you know, promote the uh, AIS Awards or the GDC Awards on – uh, the internet, and talk about it as much as, you know, as much as Spike TV awards are, are done, I think they could get even more popular, and they are respectable. Like, most people, like, when I checked Reddit, and people were talking about how bad uh, the uh, the VGAs were, they didn't even realize that the AIS awards existed. They didn't even realize that the GDC had their own award show. People were talking about Reddit doing their own show, which is fine. I mean, I, I like the idea of having multiple award shows, but... Yeah, I think the the biggest reason is because nobody even knows about them, and you know, yeah. I wonder uh, how
1: much of Spike's success just comes from the fact that everyone hates them so much and talks <laughs> about them. And if that's the case, is. then like we're just adding to it, so we should move on. Yeah, we should know. not talk about.
0: <laughs> I do about I want one last thing, which I didn't mention in my writing, was that the advertisements for the, for the trailers of the games, which is supposed to be why this happened at all, they weren't even that good.
4: They With bad,
0: without, without exception. Even the Naughty Dog one, the only reason anyone's interested in that game is because it's by Naughty Dog. Every, the trailer wasn't that great. Ever, uh, you have the Transformers trying to rip off the Gears of War shtick, even though it was old when Gears 3 did it. And the only decent trailer was the one for Darksiders 2, and that's because they focus entirely on the character you'll be playing rather than anything else. But even that was only just above par. I'm, I'm just amazed it doesn't seem like the publishers care because they're not giving them the best uh, stuff they could. Anyway. Yeah,
3: fact, when it's just a dude running. And it, it looked exactly <laughs> the,
5: the same as the one they gave have me three. The VPA has nothing whatsoever to do with critical distance. It's, I know. Everything
0: that it's, uh, Moving on. Yeah. I, it's like I,
2: complaining about Kotaku.
0: Oh, speaking of which. <laughs> you know, we can praise Kotaku sometimes <laughs> and complain about them now. So I have to get
2: back. It's not complaining about Kotaku. It's like complaining about Destructoid. The right? There. Now I, I, had a per- I had
0: a perfect segue. I don't get... I haven't gotten many of these. Take take followers. your Kotaku segway. Take it. I take it. <laughs> Kotaku it. segway. Kotaku's uh, <laughs> taking their audience, kicking and screaming into maturity. Go. Um, you want me to <laughs> talk about it? Yes.
3: All right, I'll talk about it. Uh, as you notice, uh, they, they have Kirk Hamilton now. He's awesome. He's an awesome writer. Uh, I, I can't stop gushing about him. I'm sorry. You know, he's I, think he,
0: I, th- I actually think he might be Blogger of the Year. If you're listening, of
1: of Ian year. wants to... Uh, you know, that's <laughs> a name <little> bit better.
2: <laughs> He's hot for your bod. <laughs> right,
3: so um,
2: That's not a surprise. Everyone in the Ludodecahedron is hot for Kirk Hamilton's bod, I right? I like how you
5: just... You know, it's unquestionably the case. But anyway, so, as you were saying...
3: Yeah, so they brought him on, and uh, since he has become editor, uh we've started to see a lot of uh, enlightenment articles, you know, stuff that wouldn't appear in Kotaku, say, last year, like with the exception of, uh, Lee Alexander's articles. Now it's like every week, uh, actually twice a week, you know, we see intelligent articles that basically ask gamers to think, you know, it's like they, it pulls them out of their, uh, their comfort zone and says, okay, this is how gaming is. And this is how we need to be, uh, how how we need to correct it because it's acceptable that sexism is okay as a point
0: of gaming. And, um, it's this has unfair. A- Kirk is a big part of it but it's fair to put it all on his shoulders because right. jo- Joel yeah. Johnston's reaching out to a lot of guest bloggers yes. and guest writers he yeah. doesn't always get it he doesn't always get his like commentary right but he's reaching out to people who do know their stuff and they're putting more con- intelligent content in and it I don't know who made the tweet I forgot who wrote it but it became a very famous tweet in the critical sphere that crit- the quote I said at the beginning that Kotaku is dragging its audience, kicking and screaming into maturity.
1: Yeah, I think that was a Chris Dahlen tweet
0: actually. That was Chris Dahlen. And it it seems so true, and it, they're not gonna lose anything.
1: No, no,
3: no.
2: That
0: audience yeah. isn't gonna lose a damn thing. It, it's pro and Kotaku's finally realized, oh, we can expand the audience without losing any of our original audience.
3: Yeah, I mean like so, the, the crazy Japanese stuff is still there.
1: Well, a a, a, Brian Ashcroft is still employed, Somehow, <laughs> there's Well, there's a weird thing that happens, and, and I like I spoke to Kirk recently um, about it for my PhD research stuff, you know, just talking to her about blogging and stuff, and one of the themes that kept coming up um, with him and also with Maggie Green as well when I spoke to her um, was that, I mean, what kind of happens when we talk about Kotaku is we talk about it like it's one thing. So the point I think Kirk said was that we kind of treat it as if it has an editorial voice. When it really doesn't, all it really is is just a banner and a brand and a whole bunch of bloggers underneath that, like, doing their own thing. So, And I think that that's sort of a thing that, I mean, if you look at it that way, I mean, it explains almost everything that they do, right? So you have people like Kirk who post really great stuff. And then, like Chris said, you have people like Brian Ashcraft who just post their same stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a weird thing how we kind of turn into this monolithic side when it's really well um, it may not be
2: monolithic but then you still have joel johnson out there they're saying like he wants to have this to have a certain point of view which includes more expensive more inclusive content but then kind of stumbling and so even though you know it's right of kirk and of maggie green um to say it's like every writer is doing their own thing it is more than just a brand. It is also a bit of an identity that you're subscribing to when you sign up yeah. to write for something yes. like
3: Kotaku.
0: It comes from who, at the the hiring practices at the top, who you get in, what you expect from them, and the type of environment that you foster so that they fall into line. It it happens with every it happens with every so- yeah. contributing site, even here.
5: On on that note, also, what about the uh, growth of Kill Screen this year? I mean. Kill Screen was founded last year, but this year their presence has expanded enormously on the web and it seems like, you know, half of my Twitter feed has had an article in KillScreen one way or the other. So I think it, it, they've succeeded in, in providing a platform where a lot of bloggers are kind of, I hesitate to say graduating up to, but uh, have a place where they can um, produce longer form work with more heavy editing, uh, editorial back and forth. I can't count the number of times I've heard people uh, thank Chris Dolan for the work he's done for them. And so I, I, I think there's been a, a wonderful effect on, on critical discussion this year. And while this,
0: was, this is oh, like their first... i okay. I'm oh, sure.
3: Kill Street is the Grantland of video games.
0: Well, be cool. I don't understand that reference. I thought Grantland
3: already did video game articles. Uh, only one. Just Only the one. one? Okay. Well, then we're we're sure. just
2: I would have, have compared them to sort of like the New Yorker or, of games, but.
5: Yeah, yeah like the,
0: the that's physical actually presence for...
5: is very important. I'm mm-hmm. glad that they've expanded onto the web, but the, the physical magazine is still the core. Uh, yeah.
0: I can't wait for the day when it goes from quarterly to monthly because it can afford to.
1: Would be nice. Cost. <laughs>
0: that
1: would be a pretty rough schedule, though, I think. That would be.
0: Would be. Well, that's like. why you'd hire more editors, you get more staff, and you can afford to do so. That's, it, it It is time and money that's the hindrance to to such growth. But yeah. Okay, moving
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Personally, I'm in favor of killing less trees, just saying. I, I hate
3: returning the traditional. Make an iPad app. Like Grantland does. Oh, well, that's
2: still to do biasing that. toward the middle class. I won't stand for it.
0: Are you going to have an Android app? I think video games bias towards the middle class, Chris.
2: That's true, but yeah. I don't have an iOS device, so that's even more so.
0: Could, Moving we
5: could
1: on.
0: We put a
3: hashtag on everything we talk about here. We could put a hashtag on it Personal Problems.
2: Shut up. No, I'm not using that one anymore. I've been I've been dissuaded from using that. By whom? By uh, yeah. Ninja P. or I forget his name, actually. Um Why?
0: I want to hear this reasoning, actually.
2: Actually, no, it was a very good argument that was made, and it wasn't actually his, although he subscribed to it. It was an argument that was made by an article that he linked to me, but the argument being that saying that something is a first-world problem when it's something like it's, you know, it's minutia, it's just something that's tedious. It's like that's condescending because that's suggesting that people that are not within the first world don't also have those little day-to-day
3: annoyances, which I
2: think is a valid argument, really.
3: And and another thing I'd like to add to that is that uh, seeing that America's first world and some of the country isn't is also uh, you know it dismisses all the problems that the uh, that people living in poverty in America seem to have like just because they have a fridge doesn't mean they're living in the first world you know it's it's, it's that sort of a uh, idea that that Americans are better off than everybody else that's what's keeping them down you know like it it's, it allows the uh, uh, the one percent to oppress the ninety nine percent because they'll say oh hey you. You guys have a fridge. What are you complaining about? You got a phone. What are you complaining about? You know, it's 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 it is very ignorant and it assumes that people living in the so-called third world don't have fridges and have cell phones, which they do. They also do. I mean, people in India have a lot of cell phones, even though they might not have food, for example. So
2: yeah, yeah and it, 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 it doesn't really do anything but stifle the conversation, which is unfortunate. It,
3: yeah, the whole idea of worlds is so. I mean, it, it was, it's flawed to begin with, but it, it is so outdated. It's 30 years old. You know, we don't live in that world anymore. There's no forcible third world. It's like every country is a combination of both. You could go to a place like South Korea, and if you're in Seoul, it's a first world country. But if you move out to the suburbs, it's a third world country because they don't have certain amenities that uh, you might find in Seoul. So it's the same thing in America. You know, if you're in New York City, then OK, you're in the first world. But if you're um, in Google, Arkansas, you might not be so lucky. You might not have internet access uh, you know, as readily available to you. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> da- well, David has to leave us now because he uh, he was on the phone and now. So. Yep, thanks goodbye, for having David.
5: me. Uh, meeting people for a holiday dinner.
0: Yep, we only knew we had you for a little time, but it's glad to have you just for as little as we did. Yep, thanks.
1: Thanks, David. Thank you, David. Thank thanks, you, David. David. Okay. Man, that's so, We haven't editing. um haven't really heard much from Katie. I'm kind of interested to hear what um Katie, what your favorite or important event of the year, if you had one, was
4: I definitely wouldn't call it my favorite, but I would call it the most important because I was actually there. It would be the free play panel, the um thing that devolved into this huge sexist bullshit argument. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I guess, like, you know, I'm still relatively new to games criticism. So I feel quite, I guess, I'm, I guess, used to all this sort of stuff. But I was actually at FreePlay. It actually affected me quite a lot. So I wouldn't mind talking about that if you guys are.
1: No, go. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Do you to explain um, the situation for people who might not have followed it along on Twitter at the same time?
4: Yeah, it was basically a panel about games criticism by people who hadn't really engaged with games criticism. And, um, God, I've kind of, like, blocked it out of my mind now, but um, it eventually <laughs> devolved into the, um, the panel chair making some really disgusting comments about, I don't know, he asked, where are the women in games criticism? Obviously, the women are everywhere. But, um, yeah, I just remember the audience visibly tensing up when he asked that question. And I think he saw it as well, but he continued going on with all sorts of... Was it the cartoon jokes or something? That's what i heard. Weird jokes.
1: I think his point at the time was about how important it is to be able to make lowbrow humour and appeal to the lowest common denominator or something.
4: Yeah, Um, that's what Yahtzee was saying. And, you know, fair play to Yahtzee. He's making money off it. He's making a living off it. It's good for him. But there was no consideration given to the kind of criticism that we cover, Critical distance, which is what uh, really.
0: Well, that's the big, the big thing: is that when everyone was saying, when everyone ever asks about criticism or where uh, the, the deep, insightful writing is that other mediums have, and I did this experiment right after the panel and the huge Twitter blowup. I just, I went to figure, just to find out how people could not know, and it turns out it's actually quite easy because critical distance doesn't even show up for a number of key phrases on the first page of Google, and that's, that's a big deal. And the, a lot of the stuff that shows up on the first page is years-old, out-of-date articles asking, where's the Lester bangs of video games? Where's games criticism? Why doesn't this exist yet? And if you realize, and it, if nothing else, that panel showed a number of things, but for me, not being woman or being there, the biggest thing that I, could, that I garnered through the Twitter feed was we're invisible. As many hits and as much traffic as that we can drive to as many different places as possible, we're basically invisible.
1: Yeah, in I mean, the that's been era. a... Sorry, you, okay? you go, Okay. <laughs> um, the, the whole uh, issue of the, the visibility of the, the games blogosphere has been one that has been around like since as long as I've been involved in it. So we, we were having the same discussion back in 07, and actually critical distance you know, was originally founded in response to that sort of thing, because we wanted a place where we could um, direct people and say, hey, look, there is this criticism out there. So, yeah, I mean, I I know that that's that's still an issue. I guess it's certainly better, though. I don't know, I I keep getting blown away every time I think to look at the RSS readership of of critical distance. It's it's up in the 1,500 almost now weekly readers, which is, you know, doing all right. So, um, and I think that it sort of, there's an awareness amongst other people who were sort of well-placed as well. Maybe before it was sort of, you know, it was this little community, but now I think that there's a bit of a, I don't know what to call it. <clears throat> Explosion? No, it's more like people in high places are a bit more aware of us now and, and of the community.
2: If you're someone oh. who knows people, you know critical distance. Uh, okay. <laughs> that That's what I'm trying to say. We are sort of, we are sort of an in-group thing which uh, can create problems then when we're trying to reach, say, a broader audience. Like, this came up with me and uh, my game criticism professor um, when uh, Dennis Farr from Gay Gamer and Border House, Purple Bunny Ranch, did his I am a gay gamer and the F word is not okay post on Kotaku. Mm-hmm. And he said, it wasn't making a strong gesture. And I'm just like, no, it is a strong gesture, but it was, it was a strong gesture for the community that was already sort of aware of that thing. And it's not the same sort of general mainstream awareness that people have when they're going to places like IGN and going to places like Kotaku. We are sort of a niche within an already niche hobby.
1: Yeah. I don't know how much of that is an inevitable result of um, just our topic and our approach. Admittedly, like not everybody is interested in reading sort of um, academic tinge um, games criticism or even um, yeah. middle of the road. Yeah, even middle of the road stuff. Long, like, so. long journalism. Yeah.
2: Um, and I, I, I honestly think that things are improving, perhaps not as quickly as we would like. But I remember I think it was like the first um, I did, roundup I did um, when I took over for Ben for Thwigabib. And one of of my articles subsequently turned up in Kotaku a few days later. So I definitely think that we have the potential to boost our own signal further and to signal boost other people further and to saturate, you know, the general public, although I hate that phrase, this awareness of what we do and what we're looking at. But, you know, when you get down to the material realities of things, I mean, I think Eric's got a good point here. It's just like, we're not optimizing our search engine results here. And there's a lot of things that just from the level of self-promotion that we can be as earnest as we like, but there's also just like, we have to, at some point, damn it, I'm just going to say, we have to play the game here. Yes,
1: we do. Yeah. Um, And to bring that back to the the free play panel, I guess... Yeah, so there was one there was one woman on the panel, Alison Crogan, who's a um, theatre critic and literary critic. And it was sort of it was strange the whole time. I think um, Katie would probably agree with me that that she sort of was silent and wasn't really at all asked about her own take on the issue. I mean, and it was, she was sitting there and there were these three other guys on the panel with her talking about the visibility of female critics, and they weren't even asking her for her opinion. I think they might have thrown to her at one point, but yeah, it was just a bizarre thing.
0: And the, what was really interesting about it is that, under technical reasoning, she was the only critic on the panel. Because <laughs> Yahtzee is yeah. a reviewer. He calls what he does criticism, but it's really just the bare standard of what reviewing should be and that all other re- that most other game reviewers just fail to live to.
1: Well, he's very critical in the sense that he's negative, but a lot.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but there's more... Certainly being critical where it's absolutely deserved and hammering and just pointing out the... Pointing the Emperor has no clothes is necessary, but that's just a baseline standard. And it's kind of amazing that we hold him as our best critic when he is quite literally... He's just the best because he's the first one to reach that standard.
4: Who so actually calls him the best critic? Just wondering, because I don't think anyone here would.
3: Yeah, nobody's really the best critic or the best reviewer. I think the problem is that a majority—well, maybe not a majority, but a visible pro- uh, portion of, uh, of game reviewers—happen to be like uh, Greg, what's his face from IGN. You know, where his idea of a game review is to call it awesome and not actually uh, extrapolate how awesome it is. You know why it's awesome or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Just, oh, this is the game of the year. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. You know, and that is uh, that is basically what people are. Seeing. So when they see a, a review by someone like Yahtzee, they'll be like, "Oh, he he actually you know he talks about the bad parts. He criticizes it properly." And I mean, he's like like Tom Schick doesn't get get much visibility, but he's also a, a really good game reviewer, and that's what he does. and he picks apart the game and he says why it's good and why it's not, and that is. Uh, the job of a, of a game reviewer, and there's
0: just not many of them who are visible enough compared to... And not to bring, to bring it back around too much, but Kirk Hamilton, yeah. who has probably ri- written some of... He's he's the reviewer who has gotten the most reviews actually printed through critical distance. Link, linked yeah. through critical distance. Not just that because Brendan
2: Keough isn't trying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's another big thing that when I was going through... Uh, the old This Week in video game bloggings to notice the trends or big events when I when I couldn't remember more is that the two big ones, one was gamification, and the other big one was just this idea of trying to figure of noticing how wrong video game reviews have become, it's it, it lasted for months that people were just trying to engage and it all came to a head with this with this uh in this fall with Batman Arkham... City getting 6 out of 5. <laughs> and another game getting 11, and I think it was Skyward Sword getting 11 out of yep. 10 because they because scores have become so inflated they couldn't, and they realized, well, we gave this game a perfect score, but this game's so much better, oh crap, we have nowhere to go.
1: Skyward Sword is yeah, a good let's, game. Sort of let's say. not talk about review scores. let sort of, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, let's, that's let's that's look at that for the ICEN. I
2: give this podcast a yeah. 7 out of 4.
0: <laughs> I just want to note, I just want to say, back in April I called this. <laughs> <laughs> I called this back in April. You knew That's this. my main...
2: This, this, this exact thing would happen. You knew this.
0: I wrote 7 pages on the subject. On why everything was going to hell. Or and why it wasn't getting... Any... Uh oh, yeah, listen yeah, out yeah.
2: employers out there. This is why you need to employ Eric Swain so that he has less free time to think That's about this thing. Very true. Or
0: edit podcasts.
2: No, actually leave him enough time for that.
1: <laughs> just enough. Yeah.
2: No Not enough time to sleep. Uh, but the rest is fine. Okay. So what, what is the next topic?
0: Two mentions and really just that. It's Sonic's twentieth anniversary and Zelda's twenty fifth.
3: Oh, yeah, well, okay. speaking of... We can start on Zelda, because uh, they just released a timeline, the official timeline for Zelda. Did I'm, they? They did, yeah. It's the official timeline. Apparently, the, the Zelda universe, all the games, is split to three different timelines, and each of them culminates in... Uh, or, or starts from the um, Ocarina of Time, You know, where basically if Link dies, then you have the original uh, Legend of Zelda games, and if he wins... Then you have the Majora's Mask, which is uh, it starts from the past and from the future, where uh, it goes to the, the Nintendo DS games. So there's three different timelines, and apparently Skyward Sword takes place before all of them. So it, it's like the first game in the
0: series, supposedly. I'm sorry, it, but so I haven't ind-
2: heard. I haven't heard that I much heard... bullshit about timelines since Transformers.
0: Actually, no, Chris, I actually I am actually surprised you said. Because a fan before Skyward Sword came out, just after Twilight Princess, actually culminated all the little details and realized that uh, there was a split in the timeline at Ocarina between yep. if he stays old or if he becomes young again, and that the rest of the games diverge into two parallel universes. So I'm actually interested to hear that there's a third one, official third one now.
3: Yeah, the official third one happens if uh, if uh, if Link dies to Ganon in Ocarina of Time. So. You know, basically if you lose the game, it splits into uh, Zelda 2, and that's followed by The Legend of Zelda, the original game. So that's what happens if uh, if Link loses in Ocarina of Time, and that, that, is, that explains the, uh, uh, the events of the original games.
0: I'm just amazed yeah. that they actually tried to tie this up, because their official stance before, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, was, I don't know why they bother, matter. like, what's the point? Um, <laughs>
0: I guess because they got sick of being asked, getting a thousand <laughs> phone calls off that hotline they left open since the '80s. No, I think they just
1: like had too much time on their hands, probably. Yeah. Well,
0: Miyamoto is stepping down into a working retirement.
1: Whatever that means.
0: It means he's working. It means he's still doing his job, except he's given up Mario, Zelda, and and the other big games to work on smaller titles, which actually might might mean we see a title that's directed by him.
3: Something good. You know, not not a remake of
0: Mario again. <laughs> I know. I'm just amazed that so many people were like, "Oh no, things are gonna things are gonna get worse." Miyamoto stepping and it's like as a nostalgic factor, yeah. But he hasn't actually directed the design of any game since since Mario 64, was it?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since he actually made a game. I think uh, Wii Music was the last game that he actually really directed, and that was like, you know, not, not really so good.
0: Oh, he did Wii Fit too. To uh, be fair,
3: true. Uh, but he did them, uh, you know, under the uh, auspices of the uh, the management of Nintendo. It's not like you know he wanted to work on these games. Like they were not pet projects of his. It would be interesting to see how. I mean, once he goes back to his roots, you know, where he creates a new game like, uh, like Mario. I mean, that was his his brainchild, right? Mario is his first game that he yeah. made. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Oh, if he comes up with something new, the same way that you know the the guy who made, um, Katamari Damacy. Came of Katamari Dynasty. You know, a game like that wouldn't be possible for uh, Miyamoto to do right now in his current position. He has to go independent first.
0: Which actually, at, at re-
3: yeah, which actually,
0: what? yeah, actually, what? Oh no, I was grand- just saying that that's uh, that they were gonna that if he does become part of a smaller team, sort of like the indie arm to the bigger publisher. I, I kind of wish a lot of other people would actually do that and go full hog instead of like sort of like, say they'll do it, they'll push their feet up to it, but then quickly jump back when they realize what it entails? If they would actually yeah. just jump in with full feet, he says, like, give them $100,000, three guys with $100,000, and come back in six months and see what they've got. I, it, it's going to be cheaper than your marketing efforts for your big games. I think
3: that's what they did with the Ream order. You know, they got one of the biggest designers at Ubisoft to make uh, to make Raymond Origins. He did it with a team of like five and people,
0: but an two.
3: Less debatable, but you know, Raymond Origins is such a great game. Everybody's praised it that uh, I can only see this as a success. You know, except for the sad fact that it only sold fifty thousand copies.
0: And the critics seem to be ignoring it, so it doesn't even get that.
3: Yeah, it, it this is more. You know, I, I'm hoping that Yamoto does the same thing. I'm hoping that people pay attention to it and, and aren't like, oh, yeah, oh it's not a Mario game, we'll just we'll just ignore it. You know.
0: Well, I can see the I can see at least it being a critical success, unlike uh, Rayman. Well, everyone gave it review scores. It's, it came out a week after Skyrim, so it yeah, kind of so gets I'm ignored.
3: Hope, yeah,
1: get, get, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that they sort of push better. it out again.
0: Choose your release dates better, basically.
1: Yeah. There yeah, you straight from the horse's mouth. That's what
4: you're
1: to do, publishers. <laughs> this is
0: what Eric Twain... Choose your release dates better. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you could have just them it go. In a you know,
4: week
1: we, we, have en- we have this
2: entire year here. You don't need to all put them in either December or March.
0: Which they yeah. didn't seem to, They seem to be getting better at that. It's just that now... They're getting better at it. There's really like A few people are realizing, huh, if we drop this in June, we'll have June all to ourselves. And... Then you have Red Dead and Redemption and Grand Theft Auto for mi- selling million, selling a couple of million in that month. Yeah,
3: and look
0: at the Old Republic.
3: No, you know, it came out uh, this week. All
0: MMOs seem to do that, though. Yeah,
3: but they I always mean,
0: seem to dump in December because they know you don't oh. want to be with your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, do we lose you in? Silence.
5: Oh,
0: yeah, we lost, we lost you for about 30 seconds, Ian.
5: Oh my god,
1: really? <sighs> yeah, really. That's awkward. Yeah, I was um, going to say, the older sorry, people, you know. Before we, like, uh, yeah. dive headlong into a uh, tangential ditch, uh, was there um, uh, I'm going to head off in a minute. Was there any last thing that we wanted to uh, mention that's well, yeah. important this year?
0: I hate to be that guy, but the Australian R18 rating, since we have two Australians here.
1: Yeah. Katie, do you have any, anything to add on that? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say about it. Because
0: Mark accepted. Sorrell seems to be the one pushing it hard, pushing mm-hmm. that issue hard.
4: We do need it, but at the same time, you've probably seen me complaining a lot on Twitter recently about how immature gamers can be. It's like, this is why politicians don't believe that adults play games and we need a rating for adults. Yeah. So, I'm a bit... I'm really sick of the topic, to be honest. Like, yeah, I'm really proud of what, you know, Mark Serles is doing, pushing for R18, but at the same time, I just can't bother talking about it anymore.
0: <laughs> so, you're but, saying you have the rating system you deserve, but not the one you need. We have
1: Batman. You're not.
0: You set it up too well. <laughs> I know, How I do just, you feel
1: w- about it, Ben? I think that it's... well... I think an R18 rating is inevitable. I think Christian McCrae probably put it best in a, in a piece that he wrote for uh, Gamma Sutra a few months ago. I don't remember when exactly, much earlier in the year. But he basically put it in the context of the Australian classification scheme's history and looked at why we actually don't have an R18 rating, basically something to do with some change in the 90s. And he kind of just sort of pointed at the... Um, Underlying political forces that are underneath it, and, and just how it's sort of kind of inevitable. I mean, we're not going to be stuck with it forever, but whether it happens next year or the year after or the year after that it comes down to stupid little things like does a new, does the uh, South Australian population decide to vote out the government, in which case we get a new Attorney General, in which case blah, blah, well, blah, 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 etc. You know, so there's all these little, there's like all these things that have to line up in a row before it all changed. I thought uh, you
0: got rid of Atkinson.
1: Well, yeah, we did, but uh, uh, I think South Australia's the government is a bit on the nose at the moment because I think they were the ones who just ditched their um, former premier in favour of a new one. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's kind of like a last-ditch effort of a, of a government that's been in for too long. They sort of start cycling through the uh, the leadership. I mean, we saw that in New South Wales. That happened. I think we had like five premiers, state premiers in a row <laughs> in about, uh, not you know, three or four years or something. Um, maybe not quite that many and not quite that quickly, but it certainly felt like it. And then finally they were voted out and we have an absolutely new, um, conservative government. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's weird. There are the forces that control it are like many. <laughs> they're manifold, right? There's millions of them. And each one gets to vote, <laughs> basically.
0: One last thing while well, I still got you here. I'm just going to put these two together because they're similar. The te- Team Bondies and Zynga's unethical practices. Team Bondi? Yeah, Bondi, Yeah. I'm not sure I can... Because nothing they did is technically illegal, but they're really skirting that line, both of them. Yeah, I
4: don't know. They found every, I, I, every loophole they could exploit. Sorry? They found every loophole they could exploit.
1: yeah. Yeah. I uh, I kind of have a grudge against Team Bondi because in 2009 I applied for a job and never heard back from them, so I kind of don't like talking about them. Um,
0: well, you would have lost it a year later. So. Um, yeah,
1: I probably would have. But uh, m- more to the point, it's, it's um, I mean, both of those sort of, so Team Bondi's um, management of the team, you know, that relentless crunch time they were stuck in, and also just recently some of the stuff that's come out of Zynga, apparently they're doing a similar thing.
0: Well, when their IPO came out, because they refused, or they couldn't pay their employees, early employees, they just gave them stock, they demanded it back without being sold.
1: Yeah,
4: that well, that, that's a that scandal. That
1: whole screwing over of employees is kind of like a bigger issue that's kind of ongoing in around the world, really, at the moment. It's this sort of, um, I guess it's a new political economic paradigm of, it's, it's the new class warfare, I think. It's like, Capitalists, who <laughs> are the owners yep. of corporations and and uh, people who employ other people, um, have way more power at the moment than their employees. So and they, um, don't e-
0: and they don't even get their names on the products if they don't make it through, which they physically can't make it through. It's these are just these are just the two big examples at the moment that that came up this
1: year. They make yeah, eight I mean, times I mean, more. It's it's going to be interesting to see way. how that affects the actual games industry because. Um, the business of games has always been quite I mean, like quality of life has always been an issue, right? Um it's been an issue yeah. forever. So And I
0: just I know this isn't representative, but it's ironically that the be- some of the best games come out of the companies that have the best quality of life, not just in the video game industry, but out of any company period. The Insomniac, Naughty Dog were rated two of the best places to work at in the United States that uh, two years ago, I think they're still on that list.
3: Yeah,
2: right. And they
0: and they can still, and they produce top quality product that outstrips a lot of these other crunch areas. So I think it's because you just have idiots in middle management who just don't know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, like there have been studies done compliment. that say that crunch time is eventually self-defeating because you run out of, I mean, you run your workers down, right? Eventually they just can't give anymore, and so you, you end up introducing yeah. more fatigue and more bugs and whatever, rather than actually producing anything, so, I don't know there's there's a case to be made for ethical treatment of your employees, but it's not being made very successfully at the moment, I don't think
3: Yeah, and, and the reason they even have crunch time at, say, Rockstar, for example, is because the management is so, you know, is poor at communicating with each other, you know, they hold like, grudges against each other, from what I know uh, Oh that, really? Yeah, yeah, the, the managers don't talk to each other, and that's the reason why there's so much crunch time.
0: <laughs> and that's how Bo- that's how Team Bondi got away with a lot as much as it did, communication issues.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's a, like, if, if they were to resolve these communication issues, if they were to put their egos down for a second, I mean, if the managers would put their egos down for a second, I I think the, the employees, the artists, the programmers, and all so forth, they wouldn't have to struggle so much. They wouldn't have to do crunch time. Because what happens is, you know, one guy... Manager on one team will not talk to the other guy on the other team and he will not say, he will not give us recommendations. He'll just say, uh, I need all these textures done. And so they will be working on the textures. Meanwhile, we don't talk to each other. So they're like, oh, we have to do all the textures again. And so that's what time. You know, it's it's so poorly managed. And and this, I, I know this from talking to former employees of, uh, of Rockstar and they say, you know, this is general.
0: We're losing you, AM. Yeah, again. He's just so excited I that he's, he's outstripping <laughs> his microphone. His mic. <laughs> oh, man.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, like I was saying, uh, you know, uh, these are the issues that plague all these bigger companies is that they don't talk to each other and they don't manage properly that, you know, things that crunch time becomes necessary. And because they, you know, the big companies assume that crunch time is mandatory, they don't really put much effort into fixing their uh, management practices. If they were to do that, if they would to, Operate on a paradigm that says no crunch time for any. That I think to optimize how they need the company and make sure that you know time and effort doesn't get wasted on stuff that's you know not necessary and plan accordingly. You know, planning, planning is important, and they just don't do that. To, to them, it's all this. Oh, we got we got a lot of time. You know, we got
5: and we lost them again.
0: Damn it. <laughs> <Am I here? laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, you are now. Yeah. I think okay, we're close last. to
2: losing Ben, aren't
0: we? Yeah, one last thing because he brought it up—a mm-hmm. blunt critique of game criticism.
1: Yeah. Oh. Um, so yeah, actually, I thought there was something in what Ian was just saying that that kind of nicely leads into that issue as well because um, I, I, we're sort of seeing—we've seen a bit of it over the year, bit of. I guess you could call it pushback from developers themselves um, over the the kind of criticism they've received, or um, I guess probably a better way of putting it is developers are um, complaining when we are speaking about them um, without getting their input, I guess. So I think what Dan Cook was sort of complaining about was that a lot of criticism, and I mean, he's kind of right in this sense, a lot of criticism gets written by people who don't have experience at, for instance, Rockstar or at Zynga or at whatever. And um, as much as, yeah, like we can, we can talk about the things that we've heard and what people have told us from those companies and whatever, but it's I don't know if it's exactly the same um, as actually, you know, having the experience itself and, and um, getting it firsthand. So in that sense, that that's my one concession to um, Dan Cook's piece in that, that was in that sense that he's kind of he was right in another sense he was totally wrong in that um, we totally can write criticism of um, games that without any kind of experience making games at all that, I mean that's totally valid 100% I, I think that that's anyone who says otherwise is um, trying to enforce something you know they're trying to get you to do it a certain way or whatever
2: yeah, as uh, I recall, his his complaint was that the kind of criticism that people were doing was not the kind of criticism that developers wanted. It yeah. was yeah. that yeah. we were he we wanted. were looking yeah that this particular developer wanted. It's just we were talking about aesthetic, we were talking about characters, we were talking about this or that and the other thing. And he's just like, no, I want I want quote I want coding feedback, I want mechanic feedback, yes. and, right. and that's what QA testers
0: are for. Mm-hmm. The ironic thing is is that we're giving end-user experience. That's what we were creating, the end-user experience. And he wants his, he people to critique his end of the thing, but, well, one, we don't know, but two, it also ultimately doesn't matter how well your code works on your level if it doesn't give a good end-user experience.
2: Exactly. Well, so even though it's, it's like, he's legit in kind of you know, wanting a bit more developer-level feedback but it's not as though he's completely deprived of venues in order to acquire that. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Gama Sutra has a very large base of developers in their peanut gallery that would be happy to give him feedback on that level. Mm, and the
0: GDC metrics talks.
2: GDC metrics talks. Um, his own QA testers. Uh, it seems to me that it's kind of silly to assume that all criticism
1: has the same purpose. Yeah, yeah so he's in an yeah. angle that kind of fits with that. Um, um, I guess the phenomenon of pro gamers or high, extremely high-level players, like uh, people like David Serlin and um, people that I'm thinking of in particular, people like Day9 and other um, StarCraft commentators. I mean, they're going to be able to give the kind of mechanical feedback that um, Dan Cook, I think, is really looking for. But they don't have experience making games. They just have experience playing them, and they just play them really well and they, they have a really deep Knowledge and grasp of their, the games that they play. So, in that sense, I think even, even Dan Cook's request itself was wrong, in that he's not really asking for better experience in making games from critics, but a better, um, or just, just a deeper engagement with mechanics, which is, I think, what he was really after. So, in that sense, he's, he's kind of, I don't know where to go with that except to say that Day uh, 9 is guess amazing. It's
2: <laughs> At best, it seems limited. I mean, that's like saying that the only thing you can f- critique the food on is what sort of plate it's served on. <laughs> there are so many aspects to a yeah. game that go beyond the mechanics. I mean, I'm not saying that mechanics aren't incredibly important, yeah. but if that's the be-all and end-all of your game is the mechanics, then I would just kind of wonder what you've got these other parts in there for.
3: Yeah. I, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say something, and then just like the, I'm just you know, stealing
1: your words. What it's did just I yeah, Christy. Yeah. I'm stealing mechanics
0: words. are mechanics are really only good for as what the user gets out of them, rather than because what they do and how they affect the system and the numbers is all important. In place, but it's really about what the player gets out of the doing of it, and that all requires the context, which what most critics are focusing on. And I think he misses that context is a, is a lot a big part of, of, a ga- of the games nowadays.
1: Well, I think a lot of game developers have been sold this line that, I mean, it's been around forever, right? Like, oh, it, 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 so it's a particular argument that game developers, I think, in particular tend to buy into, and it goes a bit like this. So, all right, um, games are completely utterly unique. There's never been anything like them before, and that they're interactive, film and books and blah, 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 have only trivial interactive elements, if any. Um, and so in that sense, the ultimate and most important part of games has got to be interactivity, which looks like a valid argument on its face, but really, like you said, players Can't. engage with everything in a game, not just the mechanics. Yeah. It's like that those other things aren't just insignificant. Like, you know, even, even things like UI and interface, they're not really mechanics, they're UI. Um, and and But yet there's still a game developer... Um, a lot of developers, I think, recognise the importance of really good UI. Um, so in that way, again, there's a, there's a weird cultural thing I think going on in the way that game developers talk about
0: what they do. So you have to leave us, Ben. Yes,
1: I have to finish packing bags before I leave today. Oh.
0: Well, it was nice to have you on for as little as for as little time as we did. Now I'm we nervous, can get yeah. off to talking about all the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Goodbye, my Facebook husband.
1: Goodbye, darling. <laughs> have a uh, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's, everybody. Yeah, you you do. too. You too. Merry,
0: Merry holidays.
1: Christmas. Okay. Bye. Happy
0: Hanukkah.
2: I should have okay. wished, wished him a happy happy winter solstice and treated him sure. to uh, sacrifice a few albinal bowls
0: Is that what you do on the solstice?
2: I guess if you're a druid. Are you a druid? Nope. So there we go.